any of you who are uh, visiting with us this morning, or if it's your second or third time with us, I see a few new faces, and I welcome you here and encourage you to stick around after the service and um, wait for someone to talk to you, or (laughs) come and approach uh, myself or one of the other pastors. We would love to meet you. Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John 21. John 21, we're going to be in verses 1 through 19 today, and it's also printed for you there in the bulletin, so you can follow along there. This is our, se- our second to last sermon in the series of John, and I'm excited to be in God's Word with you. Again, we're in John 21. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it, and bread. Jesus said to them, "'Bring some of the fish that you have just caught.' So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. Now this was the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples After he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you 
and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, as I have sat with this text this week, you know the ways that you have refreshed me through it and renewed me and comforted me. And I pray now, Lord, that your spirit would strengthen me and enable me to show to your sheep just how tender and loving and caring and strong is our shepherd, Jesus. And I pray that it would strengthen us, especially the weak among us. In your son's name I pray, amen. Amen. Well, if you had never known that there was a John chapter 21, if someone had just printed the gospel of John out on paper for you and, and handed it to you but taken away chapter 21, you would get to the end of chapter 20 and you would think that the book was finished. It, it reads, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That sounds like the ending of a book. You probably would not turn the page over expecting another chapter. But there is a chapter 21. John has more to say. Seemingly, by the end of chapter 20, he has accomplished his main goal of writing the book, which is that we might believe. And so whatever he's adding at the end of this gospel is, is going beyond belief. He wants to accomplish something beyond that we would believe in Jesus. And that thing is that he wants to instill certainty. Belief past belief. Cemented belief. He wants to triple stamp our confidence in who Jesus is. You can see that. In verses 1 and 14, look at verse 1, it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself. And then again, Jesus revealed himself in this way. And then verse 14, this was the third time Jesus revealed himself. John couldn't be clearer. Jesus appeared three times, and this is what he was like. The first time he appears to the disciples, he meets them in their fear. He says, peace be with you. The second time he appears to them, he addresses their doubt. He says, put your hands in my side and believe. And now he is meeting them in their futility, in their weakness, in their weariness. The disciples have gone back to fishing and have caught nothing. And who among us cannot relate to them, to that feeling of being up against the wall or of casting your net out upon the waters and catching nothing and having nothing to show for it. All of us are trying to be faithful on God's, to God's calling on our life as a Christian maybe to serve him and to love one another, as a husband and wife to love your spouse and to be reconciled to them amid conflict, as a parent to love and train your child and to provide for your family, as one never married or widowed, or divorced, or unable to bear children, 
as one who carries a hole in your heart and you're trying to be faithful. Or as an employee working in a hostile environment or not even having a job in the first place. So many of us feel that we are coming up short, are walking in weariness, and that we're catching nothing. And so what we need to know, truly, truly know, is not only that Jesus is risen, and not only what he is like, but what he is like to us. What is his real and personal ministry to our hearts and our lives? Who is Jesus to us? And what does he offer a weary disciple who's a little uncertain or a little ashamed or very cynical and ready to just go back to fishing fish and not fishing for men, to not following Christ? And what we see is that we have a Jesus who feeds his sheep, who ministers to us, and who does so so sufficiently that we even have the energy we need to go and minister to others. And so my main point this morning is that Jesus' ministry to us animates his ministry through us. Jesus' ministry to us animates his, his ministry through us. And I'm going to break that down into three parts. The first is that Jesus' power surrounds us. Jesus' power surrounds us. Secondly, Jesus' care sustains us. It sustains us, Jesus' care. And then third, Jesus' love goes before us. Jesus' love goes before us. Well, let's look at the first. Jesus' power surrounds us. We'll be in verses one through eight here. This whole first scene in particular is about the disciples coming to recognize who the Lord is, who this mysterious man on the shore who has told them where to cast the net, who he is, and that, that man slowly coming into focus for the disciples. Verses 1 through 3 are, are sort of backdrop, giving us some details to, to paint the picture, and, and they show that the disciples are kind of in a tough spot. They're in this sort of limbo period between the resurrection and the mission that they are going to undertake in Acts. They've gone to Galilee as Jesus has commanded them, but they're sort of just waiting. And they're standing somewhere between belief that Jesus is the risen Lord, they've seen him twice, and certainty that Jesus is the risen Lord. They still don't quite recognize him when they see him. And so hanging in the air for them is this question, is what Jesus started going to last? Is this for real? They're sort of it's almost like they're in startup mode with no customers and no money. And they're wondering, what are we even doing here? And it's in that context that Jesus appears to them. And the, the narrative moves pretty quickly, starting at verse 4. You know, morning dawns, and there's this man standing on the shore, and he calls out, Children, do you have any fish? And they do not. And so he tells them, Cast your nets on the right side of the boat, and you will find some which is, is sort of a funny understatement in the narrative, given what happens next. They don't just find some fish, they find 153, 153, so many that they're not able to haul it in. 
And you know how sometimes when a kid tells a story, they become really fixated on like one particular detail, you know, like if something jumped really high, it's, he jumped like this high, no, it was like this high, and if there's a few of them, they're kind of bickering to make sure that everyone agrees just how high this thing jumped or, or whatever, and there's this sense to them that the detail really matters, that you really need to understand exactly what happened. Well, there's a sense of that here with John uh, in this detail. He's, he's reporting specifically how many fish they were, not only to underscore that this, I think, is an eyewitness account, but to impress upon us there were a lot of fish. And they weren't small fish. They weren't even medium-sized fish. It says they were large fish and that the net was not torn. These are the details of the Lord's power and of the Lord's provision. And upon this miracle, immediately one of the disciples, and it's John who's writing this gospel, says, it is the Lord. He knew then. The moment of recognition hinged on the moment where Jesus revealed his power. Now, the point of this text, if, if we were to try and apply it, is not, you know, this man made my endeavor successful. Now I know that it's the Lord. Rather, it's this is exactly the kind of thing I've seen the Lord do. For the disciples, they've seen this before. They've seen someone command the seas, control what they could not control, meet their weakness with his power. And when John saw it, his, his eyes were opened. My friends, Jesus has command over our whole world, over your world your every circumstances, every circumstance, even and especially the ones that are beyond your control, where your weakness is displayed. In that detail, the power of Christ is displayed. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote that God richly provides everything uh, for us to enjoy, or provides us everything to enjoy. And this is the same Apostle that wrote I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul understood that the weakness of our life is an opportunity for God to show forth his power. And this whole scene reminds me of a song by uh, Sarah Grove. She's a Christian singer-songwriter, and in her album commentary on, on one of her albums, uh, she tells a story behind this song. It's called Enough, and she's, she's visiting a friend who she, she knows is in a bit of a tough spot financially, and, and Sarah goes to the pantry to get something from her friend's cabinet, and uh, when she opens it, all that's there is just a couple of cans of beans. And then it's just basically empty. And, and Sarah turns and she looks at her friend and her friend's face is just this moment of sort of admission. Yeah, we're in a really thin place financially. And Sarah goes on to think about just the way that, that God has a history of providing for his people in those very thin places. For example, Israel wandering in the desert and he tells them there's honey in the rock. And she writes, really we don't need much. There's strength to believe. 
There's honey in the rock. There's more than we see. These patches of joy, these stretches of sorrow, there's enough for today. There will be enough tomorrow. What we see of Jesus here in this passage teaches us that we can come to see the areas of futility in our lives, not as signs that God is not there, but the opposite, that God is there showing his power and revealing his sufficiency, even if it's not in the ways that we might hope. This is the God whose power surrounds us. Well, our God is not one who just works cool tricks to wow us and make us know that he is God. He is a God who invites us to his table for relationship. And so we turn now to our second point, which is that Jesus' care sustains us. Jesus' care sustains us. We're in verses 9 through 14 now. Look at how this section begins. It says, when they had... When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. In essence, Jesus has gotten camp ready. Have you ever been camping and, and maybe you've gotten to the campsite, but you, you haven't set up yet? And so, you know, you go and you maybe use the bathroom or you go wander and just explore a little bit and you come back and, and one of your camping mates has already, you know, gotten the fire started. It's already started to set out dinner Maybe has even like gotten your snacks out of your pack and set them there for you. And you just think, what a great campmate, <laughs> looking out for me, like anticipating our needs and, and meeting them. You know, someone did this for me yesterday. I had commitments most of the day and I still needed to finish this sermon. And they came when I was away and they took my dog for the whole day and even left snacks on my table and a rotisserie chicken in my refrigerator anticipating my need and lavishly meeting it. This is what the disciples come to in Jesus when they get on land. A Jesus who has anticipated their need and stands ready to feed them. And there's already fish on the fire. He didn't need their fish. And yet, look at this detail in verse 11. Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And there were so many, the net was not torn. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. What is the point? Not just that Jesus has fed his people, but that he has done so abundantly, that there's more on the table than they need. And he was ready to meet them. And so what is this scene driving at? What is its significance well, it's the same as the scene before. Certainty that this is the Lord. John makes this clearer when he says in verse 12, Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. In other words, the disciples realized, We've been here before. We've sat with this man before. And have seen him set a table for us. And not only for us, but for thousands. It is just like Jesus to feed the hungry and the weary and have plenty left over. They knew it was the Lord. 
Friends, he really does care for us. Really, we don't need much. There's enough for today. And with Jesus, there are often leftovers. Jesus owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he cares for the birds of the air, and he clothes the fields with lilies. Will he not care for you, his precious child? Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye thirsty, come and welcome God's free bounty, glorify. So next time you sit at a charcoal fire or eat fish or bread, remember this passage. Remember the man on the shore who seats you at his table and meets your needs. This is the Lord of heaven and earth who is not too busy to build a fire and flay fish for you. I said earlier that the point I want to make from this passage is that Jesus' ministry to us is what animates his ministry through us. And we've now wrapped up the first half of that, talking about his ministry to us, and I, I hope that we have more certainty of who Jesus is to us personally and really as a minister. Now let's consider the second, his ministry through us. What is he calling us to as recipients of his love and his care? Well, that brings us to our third point, that Jesus' love goes before us. Jesus' love goes before us, and we're in verses 15 through 19. Here we come to Peter, back to Peter, really. I mean, if you, if you follow this narrative, you'll see that, that Peter has been increasingly coming into focus. He's the one that jumped out of the boat to swim to Jesus. He's the one that went and hauled the fish out of the boat. This whole narrative is driving at, what about Peter, that one who denied Jesus? What is his standing before Jesus now? And I want to make two points about Jesus' dealings with Peter and what it means for us. The first point I want to make is that often, if not usually, Jesus uses our failures to draw him or to draw us to himself. Several weeks ago, Nate was preaching on John 18 when Peter denies Jesus. And the text tells us that, Jesus, that Peter was standing by a charcoal fire, warming himself. And Nate pointed out that that phrase, charcoal fire, appears just one other place in John, and it's in our text today. So previously, Peter was around a fire with servants and officers of the parties that arrested Jesus and put him on trial. But now here we find him in the company of his disciples before the risen Lord. And there's another parallel as well. Three times Peter denies Jesus. Aren't you one of his disciples? I am not. No, but aren't, aren't you one of his disciples? I am not. Weren't you with him in the garden? I was not. And here, at the charcoal fire of second chances, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? Simon, Son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? It's as if Jesus is bringing Peter's denial into plain sight and in that exact place saying, I forgive you. I love you. I have restored you 
to myself. Is there fish in your stomach? Is there bread in your stomach? As surely as there is, I love you and I have forgiven you. For Peter and for us, the places of failure become the places of intimacy because that's where Jesus' love and mercy meet us. It seems to me that forgiveness will do far more to bind us to the love of Jesus than our own obedience will. And that's one of the great mercies of God because I think most of us are dealing more in the forgiveness realm when it comes to what we need from God than we are in bringing God something of our own. Last time I preached, I, uh, I preached here, I mentioned to you that my uncle Kenny, who's actually my second cousin, but he's more like an uncle, was dying of cancer. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my mom got the call that it could be any day now. And so that day, uh, her and her sister, or she and her sister, um, got in the car and they drove down to Vancouver, where he was dying. And while they were in the hospital with him, um, at some point, his, his ex-wife came to visit him. And I don't know the details of their marriage or divorce, except that I know that um, Kenny carried a lot of shame and regret around it, uh, and that at this point, uh, there had been you know, been goodwill restored to, to them. And so it was a, it was a tender and a, and a loving visit. And Johnny is his ex-wife's name, and she was a Christian, or she is a Christian. And my mom said that while Johnny was in the hospital with them, she spent a good deal of her time sort of tucked away in, in a separate room, out of sight, just praying for Kenny that God would save him, because uh, at that point, Kenny had not come to believe in the Lord. And it's a prayer that many in our family had been praying well, later that day, my mom and her sister had, had gone out to, to leave the hospital, and they were, they were making their way out of the parking lot when they saw Johnny running toward them excitedly. And when she, you know, she got to them and they rolled down the window, she told them, Kenny just made a profession of faith. They had left the room, and there was this secret moment between the two of them. You know, Johnny was not the first person to preach the gospel to my Uncle Kenny but he was the, she was the one that God used to draw him to himself. God used the place of Kenny's greatest brokenness, his failed marriage, to redeem him. And isn't that just like God? To bind up wounds and to bring beauty from ashes and to use our deepest darkness in ways only he can to draw us into the light. He did it for Peter he did it for my uncle. He can do it for us, my friends. Is there a wound or a failure that you think is beyond his mercy and healing power? Bring it to the charcoal fire of second chances and be surprised. There is no such failure or wound that is beyond him. The second point I want to make about this scene uh, and how Jesus' love goes before us is that Jesus calls us to love him and his sheep like Jesus has loved us. You know, it's, in, it's interesting. Jesus doesn't really address Peter's failure head on. You know, his questions for Peter and his response to Peter shows that Jesus has moved beyond forgiveness and 
and onto calling. He wants Peter to know what love and commitment look like now on the other side of redemption. And the answer is, is feeding Jesus' sheep. And there's a beautiful unity here with the rest of John. If you remember a few chapters ago in the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus gave, gave his disciples a, a new commandment, it's to love one another. And Jesus says, as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And John will go on in his epistles to explore this same inherent connection between our love for Jesus and the proof of that love seen in our love for his people. And so here, Jesus calls Peter, as one who will pastor, to feed the sheep. And I find it beautiful that Jesus does not call Peter to do something he has not done first. Peter has just fed, or Jesus has just fed Peter and loved him and said, and says, now you go and feed my sheep. To carry the ministry of love I have, I have had on you, to now go and carry that to others. And to carry it as far as Jesus did, which is all the way to death. Jesus said earlier, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And then he proved it. And Jesus gives Peter his job description up front and doesn't mince words. He says, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and will carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, I am calling you to a deeply painful place. I have shown you what it costs me to feed my sheep. And I'm telling you, it is going to cost you too. And we know from internal evidence and in scriptures and church history that um, John is writing this gospel after uh, Jesus' uh, prophecy over Peter has been fulfilled. Church tradition tells us that, that Peter was indeed martyred by crucifixion for his faith. Someone did lead him where he did not want to go, and Peter went. And this scene reminds me of one of my favorite movies, Arrival. And it's, it's one of those movies that really surprises you. It's a sci-fi movie about aliens, and you're expecting a sci-fi movie about aliens and not to be involved emotionally at all in what happens. Um, and that's not what happens. I'll, I'm going to spoil it a little bit for you. I can't help but do it. Um, there's a main character, and she's a, a linguist, and she's been called upon to interpret the language of these aliens that have... Thanks, buddy. <laughs> These aliens who have um, appeared on Earth, and, and they, they want help understanding what the aliens are, are saying. And so they, they call her up, and she, as she begins to immerse herself in their language, she begins to be shaped by their language, as, as language often does for people. And specifically, she's shaped in, the, uh, in her experience of time. And so she's, she begins having all these experiences where she's, she's having what you think are, are flashbacks, and she does as well, but as the movie progresses, she learns and the viewer learns that actually these are flash forwards. And she's beginning to experience time the way these aliens do, which is all at once, the past, the present, the future, all together in one. 
And she's having these visions of deeply beautiful, good things in her future along with deeply painful things in her future. And they're inseparably bound. The man she marries, the child that they have together, the early death of that child as a teenager, and then the dissolution of that marriage. And she realizes all at once that there's a choice before her to walk into that future or not. She realizes she could just not choose any of it. She could stop the pain at its source, which is to love someone. And upon realizing it, she asked the person standing next to her, if you could see your whole life from start to finish, would you change anything? In other words, would you protect yourself? Would you choose the easier route? Would you manipulate your life for maximum safety? And she chooses to marry anyway, and to bring forth a child anyway, and to take it all together as one. And Peter chooses to follow Jesus anyway, and to take it all together as one, loving Christ at personal cost. Someday, someone will lead you where you do not want to go. Follow me there. It is possible, likely even, that the, pace, the places of pain are the places of faithfulness and of calling in our lives. Wendell Berry writes, the impeded stream is the one that sings. The place of difficulty in your life is calling forth something from you, something good. There may come a day when God will ask you to follow him into unimaginable pain. When faithfulness looks like loss or death or deep darkness. When to love his sheep means to shoulder immense burdens and to walk deeply into suffering and pain, and to share in the sufferings of Christ. Some of you may be in that day right now, or still reeling from that day in your past. You will only go to that place if you love Him. And you will only love Him if you know first how deeply He loves you, and that He has gone to the very worst place of pain for you and to glorify God. And so it will not be your love in the end that moves you to faithfulness, but his love. Jesus' love goes before us. For the life Jesus calls us to, we need to move beyond belief and into certainty. And here in this passage, Jesus shows himself as one we can be certain of. Do you see him there on the shore showing forth his power? Do you see him around the charcoal fire caring for his own? Do you see him walking with Peter, redeeming his wounds, and passing on to Peter his ministry of love? We do not ascend to certainty. We see it. 
here in the risen Lord revealed. And we know it in his ministry to us, not his abstract ministry, but the real personal ministry of Jesus Christ by which he communicates his love and his care for us in the details of our lives at the table together. And we do not manufacture the love that he calls us to. We receive it. And it is a love so powerful and pure that it bounces back on Christ and overflows in love for his sheep. And so our certainty is of God and our love is of God and not of ourselves. It's Jesus' ministry to us that animates our whole life and everything God calls us to, the very hard things and the good things. And so may all of us, by the grace of God, know the full net power of Christ and may your heart be warmed by the fire of his love and may you carry that fire in you as you go out to love his sheep by the gracious working of God. Let's pray. Father, your tenderness knows no bounds and your love no bounds that you appeared to your disciples on the shore and you fed them in their weariness and their uncertainty and that you shored up their faith for the road ahead is an act of grace. And we walk in their path now by the power of your Holy Spirit and in your love which empowers us for all that you call us to. In your son's name we pray, amen. Amen.